The following is a recording from an LTCCC webinar titled The Inappropriate Institutionalization of People with Mental Illness in Long-Term Care Facilities. The program features Nina Lowenstein, attorney and advocate for long-term care reform. For more information, including slides and video from the presentation, visit nursinghome411.org webinar institutionalization. Again, that's nursinghome411.org webinar institutionalization. Enjoy. Without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to today's speaker, and I'm really thrilled that she's agreed to join us today. Uh, Nina Lowenstein is someone who I've worked with, um, very proud and happy to stay closely over the past, I guess it's been six months to maybe closer to a year now uh, as, in, in her role at the New York State Bar Association with the Elder and Special Needs section. But Nina has worked for, excuse me, worked for nearly 20 years as an attorney at the Disability Rights New York. It's New York's protection advocacy system for people with disabilities. She has a tremendous amount of expertise is a very thoughtful advocate. As I said, she's now working with the New York State Bar Association, but she's also working with others, uh, including I'm proud to say LTCCC, on uh, thinking about uh, advocacy for reform and advocacy for residents in nursing home care, excuse me, in, in, in um, adult care facilities. So I'm going to, if you'll pardon me, we're gonna transfer these slides over to her. I'm going to stop sharing. And Nina, if you could please share your slides, that would be great. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, taking your late lunch with us on um, this topic, which is very timely. We really are reeling from you know, these new, newly disclosed but numbers, which we didn't want to believe, but it's true that nearly 15,000 people have died from COVID-19 um, who had been living in New York State's um, nursing homes and also their adult homes. Um, and many of these people, many of these residents could, could be living in community-based settings. And many people in these residents have mental illness or psychiatric disability um, and could have been living in, um, in the community. So, we're all shaken up and it's urgent that we think about um, really reorienting our system of long-term care um, to, to be more community-based. And um, it's something that, that you know, the, this idea is not new, um, but the impetus is now. And I very much wanted to speak about people with psychiatric disability because, um, they're often perceived as, well, those are the people who really just need to be in the nursing homes or the adult homes, and it'll be so difficult to you know, move them out. And I really want to serve the purpose of the American Disabilities Act by looking at the history and the assumptions that are made um, and, and to take a look at, at, um, at some of the efforts that have been made, um, where are the shortcomings, what's happening now. And um, I do hope we'll have have a lively discussion at the end of my remarks. Um, so um, my experience is with the protection and advocacy system largely. Um, and the protection and advocacy system has um, 
abilities to monitor and access into facilities. So I have been in nursing homes and adult homes and the Protection Act advocacy system also um, has taken legal actions um, on behalf of residents. So that is the majority of my experience. Um, so that's where I come from. I don't, I don't know, I, I'm not a health policy expert. I'm not a psychiatrist or a social worker and all of that, all of this discussion could certainly benefit from other perspectives and experience, but we'll leave a fuller panel to the future. Um, I, um, a lot of what I'm gonna talk about is Medicaid and I wanna just start with a few statistics um, to keep in mind, which is you know, how much Medicaid really shapes the system of long-term care, how many New Yorkers are on Medicaid, um, how many New Yorkers have, with disabilities even more are uh, Medicaid recipients. Um, there are four out of nine New Yorkers with disabilities receive Medicaid. Um, and New York is very high in its institutional spending. So it's second of all the states. That's near the very top. Um, and it's only, it's only eighth um, in home and community-based services. So it needs, it needs, it needs to rebalance. Um, five out of eight of its nursing home recipients were Medicaid um, recipients. So this is very much a system that um, of long-term congregate care that uh, New York has come to rely on, like many states. Um, and approximately a quarter of individuals who are admitted into nursing homes have psychiatric disabilities. So this is a very, you know, it precipitates many admissions. Um, it's part of the picture. And it, in nursing homes, people are also least likely, very unlikely to get appropriate and adequate treatment for um, psychiatric disability. They're also mo most likely to stay long time. That is um, in, uh, they're most likely to stay beyond 90 days. And in adult homes, which are not um, certified, not licensed, um, don't, you know, meet, don't have federal standards to meet and don't provide the services of a nursing home and nursing care, um, we have over 6,000 New Yorkers who have psychiatric disability. Although these numbers are probably low because they're self-reported and I'll talk a little more about that later. Um, I just wanted to, you know, present a, a photograph from inside one of the adult homes because often people wonder particularly what they're like. Um, they're often very like nursing homes, although you won't see a nursing station at the end of the hallway. Um, this is looking down a corridor. This is a clean one, <laughs> at least, but it's, you know, it's linoleum, fluorescent lights, and people are in double rooms on both sides of the hallway. Um, you're assigned a roommate. Um, you go down to meals at a set time of day. You're assigned the people you sit with. Um, so the days are very circumscribed and institutional. Um, so I just wanted to go back to a bit of history on, on about nursing homes in general, because this is where so many people with psychiatric disability land when the psychiatric centers close in the 60s and 70s. And this is really the background for what we have today. And it's, 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 it's how, it's really what became, the unacceptable became acceptable, which was to institutionalize people um, 
transinstitutionalized from psychiatric hospitals. Um, there was a tremendous growth in nursing homes in the 50s and 60s. It's very much a medical model. Um, you have a whole history of the long-term custodial care in the private homes, which are the response to the state-run almshouses, um, which to me became really a background for all of this. You know, the lack of anywhere else to go is such a theme. Um, and it's a theme where it's an issue we're struggling with very much now. Um, so in the 30s, with social security payments, began to fund um, private homes that provided custodial care to older people, people with disabilities. But in the 50s and 60s, with the federal, federal building standards and funding, um, were to um, build hospitals and then in, and then increase the um, uh, numbers of nursing um, facilities, which then would meet hospital standards to get funded. Um, so that's where you get this medical model. And then you also have the funding through Medicaid and Medicare in 1965. So this is fueling a dramatic expansion of nursing homes and it's moving very much into for-profit ownership. Um, and it's really seen as a substitute for housing with some care. Um, you know, people are getting in who, you know, could their 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 nursing needs could be met in the community, or they have chronic illness or disease that could be met in the community. But that's not um, the the systems are very much just driven on to to make these facilities where, where people on Medicaid will go. And Medicaid requires states to pay for nursing facility care and does not require um, home-based home payments. So by 1965, two-thirds of nursing home residents are on Medicaid, and to, to 20 years later, over 75% of the nursing homes are for profit ownership. And almost immediately, you have the quality of care problems arising, um, low staffing, untrained staff, um, and there's there's efforts to, to develop standards, but the enforcement is lax, again, because of reluctance to close homes and turn people out into the streets. And these homes are available for people with psychiatric disabilities who are being ejected or can't get into psychiatric hospitals any longer. I mean, keep in mind the tens, hundreds of thousands of people with mental illness or psychiatric disability lived in psychiatric hospitals throughout the country. This was the public health, mental, mental health system of care. Um, but in the 50s and 60s and 70s, states developed civil commitment criteria. So you had to actually you know, be dangerous to others in order to lose your liber civil liberty um, to live in a, a psychiatric hospital. Um, and with that criteria that you know many people, of course, would need to leave. And there was also the development of medication, which could stabilize symptoms. So um, the belief is that, you know, you could live in the community, um, but there had been nothing developed in the community. It wasn't the housing, there weren't the services uh, to support people who were leaving the hospitals who really had never lived on their own. Um, these rehabilitative services wouldn't be offered under Medicaid for, for many years, but the nursing homes were there. And so um, this is where many people went. And in New York and other states, there were also um, custodial care settings, the adult homes that accepted people from psychiatric hospitals. Um, and in New York, these would become in the ones that particularly held it themselves out to shelter people from psychiatric hospitals 
would be called impacted adult homes um, because they would have a certain census of people with um, uh, mental illness. So there's this transinstitutionalization from institutions, and there also are people who come in from the community for lack of, you know, who, who can't care for themselves and they don't have the services to remain at home. And so they enter the homes and adult homes. And so you get, you know, a tremendous increase. Um, I give some figures here um, that I don't need to repeat, but you know, you have this doubling of people with mental illness um, in a five-year period. You have, you know, 25% of the increase in population in nursing homes are from people who've been um, diverted or come from psychiatric hospitals. So um, it's a very large number, um, and they um, are not well understood in nursing uh, uh, facilities, um, and they're not well served. And this devolves into abuse and neglect. With the low numbers of staff and trained staff, um, they, the overuse of antipsychotic drugs and physical restraints to control behaviors is, pre is highly prevalent. And there's an adequate treatment of, of mental illness, including depression and psychosis. Um, and the Institute of Medicine had um, pulled together a study about this in the 80s. Um, which very much influenced um, uh, Congress uh, in passage of the Nursing Home Reform Act. There's a very interesting study in New York State um, that's done of upstate New York nursing homes um, in, the, in the early 80s. And this showed, this surveyed large numbers of residents and staff and found the failures to diagnose mental illness, the failures to refer for further psychiatric evaluation, the lack of any, any recreational or programming socialization opportunities, which are so important um, for people with psychiatric disability, as we'll discuss in a minute. And one of the most um, telling things is the staff perceptions um, that two thirds of these 11, they believe that two thirds of the 1100 residents had behavioral problems and they restrained and medicated them with psychotropic drugs. And there's a comment made in the article that the staff didn't perceive um, that people were depressed or they were idle, or they were lonely, and that this resulted in behavioral problems. Um, so, you know, that article is coming from a greater understanding of the treatments for mental illness, which we're going to discuss in just a moment. Um, the Nursing Home Reform Act, as I mentioned, is, is, is a reform through Medicaid, um, which was passed in 1987, which is to uh, broadly ensure the quality of care, the compliance with, the, with, the, um, with, with the, um, these standards in order to get Medicare Medicaid payments. Um, it's an effort to curb these abuses, um, including physical chemical restraints to really strictly limit the use, although it's not limited altogether. Um, and also to limit the admissions of people who have mental illness or intellectual disability. They're seen as, you know, there are many in nursing homes, they would do much better elsewhere. Um, and so these assessment requirements are developed, which are called the, the pre-admission resident review requirements or PASAR, and the evaluations need to be done independent of the nursing homes. Um, the nursing homes, again, are many are for profit and many want to fill their beds. So the admissions needed to be separate. Um, 
the people need to be reviewed separately. So there are standards on how to assess for mental illness and to um, assess for intellectual disability, to review the need for the care in the nursing home and to evaluate for community alternatives, um, which are not in great supply at this time. So in a sense, really PASSAR is only as good as the system it's in. Um, the other aspect of PASSAR is that there's supposed to be a recommendation for specialized services for the PASSAR disability. The person goes into the nursing home. Um, and um, ultimately, it, it, later on, this is really going to be reviewed as a, as a way to transition a person to the community. But um, many states, including New York, just um, consider the special, define the specialized services and inpatient hospital commitments. So it doesn't actually do people in nursing homes any good. And um, that's still the case today, actually, in New York. Um, now, by contrast, what's happening outside of the nursing homes is the recovery movement. And this is a really a direct response to the experience of psychiatric hospitalization. Um, it's the importance to people who experienced institutionalization and had no control over their lives can't be understated. Um, so crucial to, to recovery, which essentially means that you're living with a disability, that you can still have a meaningful life. And it's very aligned with the independent living movement as well concerning physical disability. You don't hide your disability. Um, you, you live with it and, and you can manage it in your way. So the importance of self-determination to make choices about treatment, your way you live your daily life, who you spend your time with, to set goals for yourself and the work you do, whether it's volunteering or other activities or employment, to live where you want in the community. Um, the emphasis is on community integration and it's very much a social model as opposed to a medical model, but it begins to influence um, uh, clinical treatment. Um, and that's to provide social supports and peer supports, peers who also have psychiatric disability to emphasize people's strengths and talents and build on those rather than to look at someone as having a deficit. Um, and this begins to influence clinical treatment, to empathize, to see a person as someone who's a person and not a patient, and to develop treatments and plan goals from the person's perspective, so the person-centered um, treatments and planning. And, and so and the, the development of the supports in community settings where um, a person develops their goals and participates in activities of choice is very, very key. Um, and as I mentioned, it's very, um, uh, very close kinship to independent living. And ultimately, these movements bring really are help to bring about the enactment of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. And here we have, you know, a very important um, part of this act is the finding and purpose in the beginning, where Congress describes the isolation and segregation of individuals with disability and, and defines it as a serious and pervasive form of discrimination. That is the, the institutionalization that is discrimination. And the aim of the act and the, the tools of the act are to bring down the barriers to inclusion in the community, to extend civil rights protections, 
um, that have been extended to um, uh, to other um, groups in our society, um, racial uh, protections against racial discrimination um, and gender discrimination are extended to people with disabilities. And the to and in addition to that are the reasonable accommodation requirements for um, for housing, employment, for places of government and places in the community where people go. Those are the places of public accommodation to, that uh, there need to be accessible to people with disabilities and to accommodate the disability. It, a, a no longer hidden disability must be accommodated. Sometimes the person asks for it and sometimes it's a requirement for, um, for a new building, for example. Um, and another, you know, another important um, aspect of this that to, to think about here with our discussion is the um, is that the findings were also concerned with overprotective um, overprotective uh, um, policies. So often with institutionalization, there's a paternalism that you know the person can't live elsewhere. You can't close because they won't live elsewhere. They won't be able to live. And that's exactly what the ADA was um, trying to address. And the Department of Justice was given the mandate to um, enact regulations to implement the ADA. And here we have the community integration mandate. And this is what, um, this, this is what imposes the requirements on state and local governments to administer its services in the most integrated setting appropriate to the needs of qualified individuals with disabilities. And that is the setting where a, the person with disability will interact with non-disabled persons to the fullest extent possible. So this, these are regulations. And um, when the Supreme Court uh, took the case Olmstead, the Olmstead case, um, as it's called, this was, a challenge uh, to, to the state of Georgia um, brought by two plaintiffs in its psychiatric hospitals um, who had been found by clinicians that they could live in the community, but there was no place for them to go. And so the Supreme Court looked at the ADA and these regulations and held that um, the state's required to provide care to people with disabilities um, uh, in community-based settings, um, people or institutional settings, and that the institutions perpetuate unwarranted assumptions that people are incapable or unworthy of living in the community. Um, it's not um, a limitless mandate, but uh, a state, if it, the state has limited resources, it still must show it has a plan for reducing the reliance on institutions. Um, so that becomes, you know, the the discussion of Olmstead plans um, is is almost kind of a defense um, <laughs> against being sued for not moving somebody to the community. Um, so following Olmstead, there's increasingly uh, the, 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 the services that people with psychiatric disability want to have in the community are covered by Medicaid, begin to be covered by Medicaid. So, so the things that were so missing you know, the 60s and 70s um, are, are starting to, to be developed in the 80s and 90s. And so you have these supports within residences, there's more community-based housing um, to develop independent living skills, to you know, move on to independent living, or the best of all, if you can be in, in supported housing, um, 
you would have case management and you would develop your skills in permanent housing. That's um, really the recovery model. Um, there are peer supports that are covered under Medicaid. I mentioned here assertive community treatment, which is a mobile um, uh, form of treatment and you know very flexible, so that it can be really important for avoiding institutionalization. Um, and, and New York State begins to um, develop supported housing in 1990 and, and funds um, kind of a range of other residences. So this is what's beginning to develop. But there continue to be admissions of people in, <laughs> with psychiatric disabilities into nursing homes um, because, you know, these are very, these are powerful forces and the community housing and supports um, you know, don't are slow to develop. Um, they require, you know, array of services and and training and funding. And most of all, they're not planned for people in nursing homes or adult homes. You know, those are people who are housed, right? They're not homeless, um, but they would be homeless otherwise. But they're not considered. In fact, you can't make it into the system um, in the in the nineties and the two, if you're not in a, a priority. Um, uh, the, being in a nursing home or adult home is not a priority. It's not a priority now either. Um, so these systems aren't planned for people in, in long-term care facilities. Um, and another thing that has come about to reorient from institutions are Medicaid waivers for home and community-based services. And this is, um, the waiver is because it, the service, Medicaid's required to be offered to everyone but um, if you target it to a certain population or a cluster of services, then you need the waiver. Um, but they can be very important for um, addressing, uh, preventing institutionalization. Um, and, but there's very little of it for people with psychiatric disability. Um, and New York State started a nursing home transition diversion waiver, but it was not oriented. Um, to, to people with uh, um, psychiatric disability. Um, and that's still the case today. Um, medical systems and mental health systems still are very separate. And in the hospitals, the pressure to discharge, of course, is very great once you know, acute care is no longer needed. Um, so you know, again, it's still very efficient, still very efficient to go into nursing homes. Um, these pass our screening systems are, are often very ineffective. Um, and there's a lot of room in New York State, particularly for people to be um, enter a nursing home who are supposed to be there only temporarily. Um, so even if the disability is identified, which it often is not, um, someone can go in for up to 120 days, for example, for convalescent care. They're never tracked. And the nursing home doesn't have the incentive to review and, re and discharge them. So um, so many people remain there. It's just an example, but um, you know the incentives to fill beds and little enforcement of these admission requirements. Um, so this is so it, it, this is looked at you know in, in 15, 20 years ago, and it's found that you know it's not it's not decreased nationally. That there's been no decrease virtually of people with mental illness in nursing homes. Um, and the Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General does reviews of people with mental illness in nursing homes and finds that people with um, 
with major mental illness, schizophrenia, for example, tend to be admitted at younger ages and more likely to be long stay. Very few of them have the required um, screenings, which could divert them or discharge them. And that, again, remains the problem of um, services in the nursing homes, that they're woefully inadequate. Um, and in New York State, what we have is the admissions, waves of admissions in the 1990s um, from psychiatric hospitals into locked nursing home units in New York City area and also in New Jersey, which ends up, you know, increasing. We 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 end up with one of the highest numbers of long stay residents um, in nursing homes with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So it's um, it's like the opposite of what was supposed to be happening and. Um, Cliff Levy of the New York Times does an investigation, um, uh, which, is, which is titled Mentally Ill and Locked Up in Nursing Homes, and that's published in the October 2002. And this, is, this, this reviews the Pataki administration having approved waves of admissions from, from um, hospitals, psychiatric hospitals into the nursing homes, which for the first time are really operating locked units. They hadn't been locked units, but to segregate people from the rest of the nursing home, keep them up on that floor. And you, many are wearing these electronic wander guards. These are bracelets that will, it'll go off if they try to leave the nursing home. So they prevented from escaping. Um, they, they, don't have the trained staff to work with them and there isn't programming. So, so Cliff Levely describes them as languishing on these floors and that there are hundreds of physically healthy individuals, many young 30s and 40s. And I was just looking at this article the other day and I noticed that um, the OMH commissioner, Jim Stone, had called the units excellent long-term housing. I mean, this was in 2001. Um, after Olmsted and the ADA and New York State had supported housing, but these units are long, excellent long-term housing for people who've been in psychiatric, these psychiatric hospitals for many years. And um, it, just, it was just appalling. I, I like to think that our OMH commissioner now, Dr. Sullivan, wouldn't say such a thing, do such a thing. But, um, and many were going into New Jersey as well, um, which uh, two of the two nursing homes in New Jersey opened up its doors. To, um, to these admissions. And um, the governor at the time was quite outraged. These were not facilities with mental health credentials. Um, and, and the vestiges remain. I mean, many of these homes are still seen as places that will take people with mental illness, including the two New, New Jersey nursing homes, Lincoln Center and Andover. And, um, uh, you know, these are these are homes you know, of lower quality, and they don't have particular treatments, but they will take um, take take the admissions. Um, the next, the, actually, what had happened a little bit earlier in terms of the investigations was Cliff Levy's investigations of the adult homes, um, which were just particularly just um, uh, awful places, um, hellish places. These were the very, very large adult homes in the New York City area that also took people from psychiatric hospitals. And they offered to provide independent living skills and you know, so that people could re-enter the community, um, but they, it was far from it. And um, sparsely staffed, low-wage workers, no training in mental health 
issues. And these are very large homes, 200 to 400 beds, which described as devolving into places of misery, neglect, and violence. And um, light, you know, very lightly regulated. You don't even have, you know, the Nursing Home Reform Act, and and their investigations, but but no enforcement. Again, the they want to avoid closure and turning people out on the street. Um, instances of Medicaid fraud and fraudulent record keeping. Um, the Medicaid fraud was again to fill the coffers of the operators, the owners. Um, people were signed up for medical services that they didn't need and they didn't consent to. Um, and um, in fact, the protection and advocacy system um, sued over that and um, just really outrageous things happened. And the numbers seem to be about 15,000 um, across the state um, with 12,000 in the New York City area. Um, that seemed to be state numbers, although they really didn't follow people and the numbers some of the numbers look like they changed, so I don't confess to know those very well. But um, there are two lawsuits that are brought um, in response, and these were brought by the Protection and Advocacy System. And so you had the um, the lawsuit brought on behalf of people with serious mental illness in the largest New York City adult homes, and then you. A little later was a, a case uh, concerning nursing homes, which was statewide. Um, so the adult homes, this is so this is brought under Olmstead, the community integration mandate, and there was a very extensive trial court opinion. Um, the case was brought, by the way, by the protection and advocacy system with law firm support and um, several um, New York City legal advocacy organizations. Um, um, mobilization for Justice and its former title, um, which I'm not recalling, New York's Lawyers for the Public Interest, and I'm sure I'm, I'm missing <laughs> something, but, um, but their coalition that brings it. And there's a very extensive trial court opinion by the Judge Garifus, um, which finds that these adult homes are institutions, which isn't surprising, but it, it detailed findings that they segregate people with serious mental illness and that they and that there's a culture of dependency and everything's you know what's done is done for them and there's no individual choice um and that these are homes that are privately operated but this is still a state system subject to Olmstead that's an important finding um and that He's, he also finds, because, you know, reviewing, you know, witnesses testified and experts testified, adult home residents with serious mental illness are capable of living in the community integrated setting of supported housing. That is the most independent um, housing in the mental health housing system um, with case management and supports. Um, so, but it, it goes up on appeal and in fact, um, the adult home industry intervenes and um, helps to bring about a reversal on a technical um, aspect of the case, case, which was concerning the plaintiff standing of the, of the protection and advocacy agency. Um, so it does get refiled as a class action and um, the Department of Justice intervenes at about the same, and, and it settles. And so there's a system of transitioning people out of the homes, which is still going on and has been very much slowed down by COVID. But at the same time, about the time of the settlement, the state tries to close the front door of 
bringing people with mental illness into the into the large adult homes, and it it, it um, issues a regulation to limit the census, and it also um, is um, uh, limits the ability of the psychiatric hospitals discharge patients into those homes, and it also at the same time um, there's sort of a deal of of inviting these large transitional adult homes, as they're called now, <laughs> to participate in the assisted living program. Um, and they can, uh, these are med these would be Medicaid funded beds and people would be offered uh, more services um, to be in those beds. And the idea was that if people with serious mental illness leave, you could have people with physical, dis uh, physical disabilities or conditions who could enter and, and live in those beds. Um, and I found that the definition of it is so interesting because it's still in the regulation that they're eligible for a nursing home, but to be eligible for ALP, you're eligible for a nursing home because of a lack of a home or a suitable home environment in which to live and safely receive services. So again, homelessness is in the background. Um, and, and these beds have been improved, you know, up to recent state budgets have approved more beds statewide. So it's very much against, you know, developing community supports um, for people with physical disabilities as well as people with uh, psychiatric disabilities. Um, and the adult home, of course, approves the admissions and reviews the needs. So there's plenty of self-interest there. And just um, mentioning these last bullets are, you know, people didn't always need the services that were, they were found to, um, that, they, that they allegedly needed, um, not surprising. Um, and the next lawsuit, and then we're going to <laughs> take a look at what's going on today. Um, there was also a lawsuit brought on behalf of people in nursing homes, and this brought both the Olmstead claims and the PASAR claims. Um, which was that admission system, which in New York State failed to have um, an inquiry into or an evaluation of the ability to live in a community-based alternative. Um, so that, that was brought on behalf of statewide people in nursing homes. And um, the good news was that those discharges did stop from the psychiatric hospitals of the nursing homes. And the settlement, um, the PASAR, there was a change to, to PASAR, and there was a settlement before trial, um, which began transitions. Um, but ultimately, you know, very few people moved. It had taken a very long time um, since those discharge. The class is only people discharged to psychiatric centers, so it's not anyone else who entered the nursing homes. And uh, it took a long time to start the transitions. And there was no in-reach, there was no support um, to support decisions to move to the communities. There were a lot of factors in why this was a small number, but the discharges that were made were really made with um, by, con by the, the, the State Department of Health contracted, uh, I think both they and the Office of Mental Health contracted with particular um, community housing providers um, to take people from the nursing homes. It's otherwise, it was just very difficult to get in. And these, they of course prioritized that housing, but it, it, it was also, it was hard to work outside that system because um, people didn't want the admissions and they didn't think that they could take uh, someone who you know, might need um, home care and supports. So um, that all was very, you know, the transitions that were done really took a lot of coordination of services and um, working with those providers. 
Um, have these cases brought about change? Well, they, um, they really serve those particular classes, um, not people who are at risk of institutionalization. Um, concerning the adult homes case, there are many adult homes outside of New York City that are on, that, that have no, um, there, there are no ways of transitioning people out and there's no supported housing set aside for them. Um, although they're still subject to the regulation, which by the way, is caught up in a number of um, state, you know, state, there's state litigation over that regulation limiting the census um, that's been brought by the adult home industry. So there's a lot of, you know, really are forces against making this happen, but, um, but the adult home, the adult homes are far beyond New York City. They're not served in the future. Uh, people who would enter the adult homes are not served by those um, cases. Um, and you can have a risk of institutionalization. If you're at serious risk of institutionalization, it can uh, be a class under this Olmstead, um, Olmstead cases. And I just have a link here to a recent um, North Dakota settlement a case that was brought by the Department of Justice um, which is a, you know, actually really very extensive settlement. And it, it's both people who are at risk of, of, of entering nursing homes and people within the nursing homes. And so there's in-reach done into nursing homes and there's outreach done to people in the community at risk and um, very extensive supports for bringing out very much a lot like the O'Toole case. Um, and, but interestingly, it's for people with physical disabilities, people with mental illness are not excluded but the system looks very much like um, like a case that would be brought on behalf of a, a class of people with with mental illness or psychiatric disability. So it's really the, the, those components are really about um, enabling people to transition to the community, the supports, the peers, you know, people who can support and say, "Hey, I've lived out there. This works," um, and so forth. The case management very important component. Um, so as I mentioned, um, so you know there are lessons to be learned from these cases, certainly, um, and lessons to be learned from looking at cases in other states. There are fewer discharges from psychiatric hospitals, which is a good thing. There's been a, a you know growth in supported housing and taking people from psychiatric centers, so that's a diversion um, from um, a diversion from people who would go into nursing homes or adult homes. There's a very you know small um, skilled nursing facility transition program from the Office of Mental Health to serve some people who are discharged to the community. I, I think very, I think it's very, it's very small, but if this could grow, that would be great. Um, um, PASAR is still a big problem. There are many deficiencies that were identified in national reviews that just have never been changed. Um, and this the 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 way people get in and are, not, are never tracked. You know, young people get into nursing homes that way. And um, in fact, I had gone into one nursing home in uh, in Westchester County, encountered um, a gentleman who was in his forties and had come in. Turned out he'd come in two and a half years earlier with a broken leg, and he was walking around. It turned out he had schizophrenia, and that was really his, you know, major dis disability. Um, and, he, and there was no, there was no connection with 
trying to get him out into, he lived in supported housing, but there were no efforts to discharge him to supported housing. And he was really just considered incapacitated because he had a psychiatric disability. Um, although, you know, they gave him medications with consent, but he um, was considered, you know, that he couldn't agree to a discharge, but we, we'd advocated for him. And ultimately he ended up leaving the nursing home and going into um, an apartment treatment program, but he had been there for years because he had never been um, followed by um, the, the resident review system. And I'm sure he's just one of many. Um, I think there are very promising, one thing that needs to be done is integrating um, mental health and home health services. Um, and there are um, demonstration projects that are funded through the New York State's Geriatric Mental Health Act. I don't think these have had a statewide impact and they are limited by a lack of access to um, home care. Um, and OMH did a survey and found that many in its housing system could benefit from that, from, from long-term care services and supports. But um, it's not clear how the Office of Mental Health would adapt its housing programs and many of which need to be made accessible, uh, physically accessible. And there was a really interesting review. Um, oh, I thought I had referred to it here. Oh, it, it's a, the wrong year. The Geriatric Mental Health Alliance, it's a 2008 study that reviewed housing programs and really found that they needed to be adapted to um, a population with psychiatric disability that's growing older um, and, you know, fewer programs should be transitional. People should be able to stay in a program that provides supports for um, activities of daily living. Um, and um, it's not clear that those programs are changing really. Um, there, um, there is really the new wave of supported housing, supportive housing is through the Empire State Supported Housing Initiative. Um, but those are, in often sort of mixed use buildings. So they're considered you know, more integrated um, than a building that's just for people who have a, a disability. Um, and so that could be diverting people who enter, would enter nursing homes or adult homes. But the most recent RFP that I put a link to um, does provide for, they're, they're, the, the, the RFP is for development of units for people in nursing homes, or at least I think this is part of, um, part of the RFP, but they're not eligible unless they were homeless before they went into the nursing home. So um, that is the kind of problem that, <laughs> that would need to be corrected because there are many people in nursing homes who really are not domiciled. I mean, they have no, they, they, but they may have been, they may have left housing to get into the nursing home and then they lose the apartment while they're there. So to really plan, you know, to, 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 to move people out of institutions, there needs to be, there needs to be initiatives that address that. Um, I mentioned about that, that there's a lot of um, uh, supports that people who are on Medicare aren't eligible for in New York state, the behavioral health supports, because um, they're, would receive Medicaid only. And that, cuts out a lot of folks who receive both Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and it's managed care, which is a capitated system and the health home coordinators really are stretched. Um, so these are the last few things. Oh, I wanna mention the personal care services. 
as it's defined is also a problem. It, you have to have a physical condition, a need for physical assistance. And there's now a bill out to expand the definition under Medicaid in New York um, to expand it to people with cognitive impairments and traumatic brain injury, but they don't, it's not, wouldn't include people with physical disability, although it could help some, I mean, psychiatric disability, although it certainly could help some. Um, but ideally you would include psychiatric disability there too, uh, because, Someone with a psychiatric disability could might benefit would benefit from supervision or cueing assistance, at least in some phase of the illness. Um, and just below, there's the, the one place where I've seen this. Maybe there's more, and I'm just not aware. Is Colorado does have a community mental health supports waiver um, for people with met, with mental illness who are nursing home eligible, and that defines personal care assistance. Um, as a, as a service for, for those individuals. And that's a kind of, you know, I think that's good thinking. Um, I've mentioned the nursing home diversion uh, issue. That waiver is um, not easily combined with supportive housing. Um, so again, it would be a problem to be worked out uh, concerning how you define case management, I think. but. Um, it also often requires backup supports and people with psychiatric disability may lack supports. Um, of course, it could be true for everyone. Um, this is really a problem for the waiver. Um, and finally, the Open Doors Transition Program is a money follows the person program, which really is excellent, but needs to be bigger. And if there would be more funding for these programs, these are federally funded programs, um, federal Medicaid programs that provide grants to states to assist with transitions. And if the um, MFP programs can do in-reach, then they can bring more people out. And they also are some that will work with diversion. Um, so that is um, that would be something that, that the state's program could do with more funds. And here's a link to the program the phone number um, and to programs in other states and the protection and advocacy systems. So sorry, I talked longer than I meant to, but I hope there's time for a few questions. Nina, thanks so much. That was, that was excellent um, and quite comprehensive as I think we can see there is a lot, well, there's a lot to cover. Um, would you mind stopping sharing your screen? Because I wanted to go back oh, to sharing yes. my screen. Yeah, thanks. Uh, and we'll, if you could stay on for a few more minutes, we will, um, we'll try to take questions till say 105 or so. Let me share my screen again. Oops, sorry about that. Just one second. We also got a lot of interesting comments as well as as questions. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that we our next webinar is on March 16th at 1 p.m. We again have a guest speaker, Professor Elon Caspi, uh, who's going to be talking about neglect leading to bodily injury and death of 300 LTC residents. Uh, and you could sign up for that um, webinar at our nursinghome411.org learning-center webinars-events or just go to the learning center um, on the top of the homepage. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple of things before we moved on to Q&A. One, Anina and I, or I should say the LTCCC and New York State Bar Association uh, and our colleagues at, at NISBA are hosting a program um, later this month on 
It's going to look at federal perspectives on nursing home care. And I just wanted to give a quick plug for that. Um, that's also available on the upcoming webinars um, page of our website. You can sign up for that. All these programs are free. Uh, and then I also wanted to mention, I think Eric is going to post this in the chat because uh, I don't have internet access at the moment. But uh, Nina had mentioned the um, Institute of Medicine study that led to some of the changes in nursing homes in the, in the mid 80s. The National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine are conducting a study right now that's um, somewhat replicative, excuse me, of the uh, of that original IOM study. And they are looking for input from uh, families and from residents and, and people, ombudsmen and people that are speaking from a consumer, ba uh, consumer perspective. So I would strongly urge people to, um, to please weigh in there. It's really important. That could be another very important study. And the, the more that we can say um, to add to that and to put in the consumer perspective, the better. Um, and here we are, sorry, Q&A. So um, without further ado, I'm going to move on to Q&A. Um, again, I'm gonna, it's a little before two. So Nina, if you don't mind staying on for about 10 more minutes, if that's okay, we'll- It's okay. I also, you know, if it's possible for me to respond to any, um, I don't know if it's possible to respond to anything, you know, by email or afterwards or anything. Oh, sure, yeah. So we'd be happy to do that. So why don't I just take a few questions, a couple of questions now. And then we can, if you're willing to do that, we're more than happy to. You're, you're a very generous guest. Thank you so no much. No one will feel left out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first question actually relates to the immunity um, from civil lawsuits. And I don't know if I, I, it's a little bit off topic, so I'm going to skip that one if that's okay. We'll, get you, we'll get you an answer to that. I could, I, I, that would be easier after. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the next is, as a volunteer long-term care ombudsman at two separate facilities, one in an adult care facility and one in nursing and rehab facility, there are many residents with psychiatric disorders other than dementia and Alzheimer's, and there are no psychiatrists on staff on call to evaluate the state uh, evolution or change in psychosis. How is that safe for residents who are there for reasons of physical disability? I think, you know, you're observing a huge, a huge issue. Um, no, I think it's not safe. And, you know, the, the, I agree. And I think it, one of the, one of the scenario, one of the issues that I was thinking about with considering the, the failure to really adequately treat is the, is the hospital dumping. And, you know, they can't, a nursing home can't, has accepted someone that they should be able to provide treatment and they don't and they just you know discharge them to you know for a psychiatric admission and won't take them back and it's just all completely wrong and the the individual really needs to be in um in a in a home that will with treatment with appropriate treatment and evaluation um not in a nursing home that can't provide it so I think it's, I think these are, it's just very much the wrong model. I think that's been observed over and over again. Thanks, Tina. And I, I would just quickly add that, you know, we've seen this a lot, of course, during the course of COVID, 
uh, across the country is that facilities are taking in residents for whom they can't provide care and services, including mental health services that those residents need. And that is a direct conflict, uh, conflict excuse me, of the basic federal nursing home requirements. And so it's something to consider if you're, I think you're uh, Cynthia who um, asked this question is a long-term care ombudsman. And as ombudsmen and advocates and, and others who are working with residents and families, it is something, it is a point of advocacy. It's challenging as I think Nina has been saying over the past hour, you can see that uh, you know, some inroads have been made but there's still a lot of challenges out there. Um, but it's by identifying these, um, um, these challenges that residents face and thinking, you know, trying to resolve them either through lawsuits or through um, which is what she was focusing on, but also through more um, uh, grassroots advocacy or individual advocacy as, as you know, her organization and other organizations, her former organization, excuse me, and others with which we've worked have you know, done as well is, is important and valuable. Uh, so I'm going to do one more question, and then we'll, uh, Nina has very generously offered to provide answers in writing, and we'll post them on the page with this um, program uh, you know, as soon as um, Nina gets them back to us. We'll give her, some, <laughs> give her some time to do that. We have, I think, 18 or 19, oh, actually 22 open questions. But It'll do, be my pleasure. I really <laughs> Thank um, you so happy. much. That's really so generous. Um, so the next one is uh, deinstitutionalization and recovery movements can be applied to reduce the segregation of old people and in institutions based on the medical model. That's the question. I'm not sure if I quite understand it, but maybe you. Yeah, I, di I didn't, um, I wasn't sure about that. Okay, so let's, let's move on just one more then. Is there any federal requirement that LTC facilities use a certain percentage of Medicaid funds to benefit the home or residents directly? I'm gonna answer this one. I'm gonna give one more to Nina. The answer is no. And as I mentioned before, um, you know, financial accountability and transparency are two of the four or so major um, priorities that we have now um, after a year of the COVID pandemic. And they've been longstanding priorities, but I think the need for, for this, this transparency and accountability, where does the money go and making sure the money goes at least a good portion of it goes someplace appropriate is, is now more important than ever. Uh, so I'm gonna ask just one more question. Uh, this is from Margaret. Thanks for a great presentation. Given that all people who live in nursing homes are all people with mental and physical disabilities, what lessons from the deinstitutionalization and recovery movements can be applied to reduce the segregation of old people in institutions based on the medical model? It's a big question. I think that I I I think that um, the mo the models, for example, that's in that North Dakota settlement, it brings together, you know, the the recovery the, the recovery principles of supports, social supports, and person centered planning, um, are you know very essential to bring someone into the community, offering supports in the community. Um, they are, they are in institutions that are based on the medical model. And it's the, it's, it's these, it's the sort of wraparound services that, especially in the beginning, transitioning someone to the community um, is very important for bringing, for bringing people out. Um, and it, those who are older, you know, can still, if, 
it's their choice. And if, if they, if, you know, if they, if someone who's older wishes to live in the community, um, they can have these services as well. Um, so it's, it's no, it's no different people are people, although the services may be adapted considering the need. So it's very, you know, individualized. Another principle of the ADA, the individualized assessment. Um, so that is, and I'm not sure how well that answered the question, mm -hmm. but I, I think these are the, the, you can look to those, to those, um, to those settlements as examples of how, how people are supported in transitions. Thanks, Tina. And I think I'll just end the program with, with the next two people who wrote in were, um, uh, just wrote in comments, and I thought they were good comments, so we could, we could end with that if that's okay. Um, one was from uh, Diane. I was a nurse aide in a nursing home that housed many people from the state hospital in the late 1960s. Every night, these residents would beg me to take them back to the state hospital because they had activities for them to do at the hospital. It sure sounds like things haven't changed a whole lot. Uh, and I think that's that's true. And the second comment is from Sandy. Sandy says, as an ombudsman, I saw a man with clear psychiatric problems and the facility hired 24 hour security persons. I was not able to talk with this man as I don't speak Spanish and several of the outside security people clearly did not speak Spanish either. It's hard to understand how the facility can pay the fortunes it must cost for this and surely it costs lots more than they get paid for by Medicaid. I disagree with that, Sandy. That's not, I don't think that's true. Um, we should be very careful about, 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 about accepting or being credulous of the industry's arguments that they don't get enough money. Um, that's my, well, my, my informed opinion, uh, to be honest. Uh, I, but her, question, her, her, her comment is, I can't figure out why he was not only admitted, but has been there for at least a year until I was no longer able to visit due to COVID. Well, the, the answer is kind of what I was just saying, frankly, that, um, uh, that, that he was admitted and he's retained because it's financially beneficial to the facility to do so. That, that's generally when, you know, what we've seen over the years and certainly through COVID is that facilities discharge residents when they're not financially um, um, profitable to, to keep in. So that's part of the issue, but we're gonna, we're gonna end there. Again, thank you, Nina, so much for your presentation and, and sharing your, your wisdom and knowledge with us. Uh, I hope you all join us next month. And of course, for the programs that we're having um, this month with the, um, with the Bar Association. Uh, that should be a really interesting program. In addition to, I'll be speaking, but also we'll have, um, for this, this is for the New York State Bar Association program, and it's again a national program, national perspectives on, on, on nursing home reform. Um, Toby Edelman from the Center for Medicare Advocacy, uh, Eric, um, uh, Eric Carlson, I'm sorry, from Justice in Aging, and Kathy, Herwitt, who is formerly, uh, I think, chief of staff for Jan Schakowsky, and she's done a, 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 in the, excuse me, Jan Schakowsky, who is a, uh, a uh, <laughs> sorry, congressperson from, from Chicago. Excuse me, getting my names a little bit, little bit discombobulated there. Uh, and she's just a tremendously knowledgeable person about things that go on in the Hill and DC. So I think together it'll be a really good program. Thank you all very much for joining us and have a great afternoon.